AC and Effers. Do you have a nice Halloween? Thanks to Zero Trick or Treaters for the third year in a row. Mr. Goodbar unleashed caloric hell on your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction to try and tease out the habits, origins, and routines so that you can apply their skills of mastery to your own work. And today's guest is an extra special one, Madeline Blaze, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for her story, Zepp's Last Stand. I took her memoir class back in 2003 at UMass Amherst, and we always managed to stay in touch over the years. She's a friend and a treasured mentor, so I'm delighted to speak with her about her career and her latest book, To the New Owners, a Martha's Vineyard memoir. Maddie is also the author of Uphill Walkers, Portrait of a Family. In These Girls, Hope is a Muscle which Sports Illustrated named one of the 100 best sports books of the 20th century. And The Heart is an Instrument, Portraits and Journalism. And her piece that would eventually become the book for In These Girls is the lead piece in The Stories We Tell, the new anthology published by the Sager Group showcasing the best women journalists. We talk about Maddie's early career, and a pivotal moment that pointed her towards feature writing versus hard news, how she likes to cut against the grain when vetting stories, judging for the Pulitzer Prize, and many of the influential books that helped form her self-guided apprenticeship. So why wait any longer? Here's the brilliant Madeline Blaze. Thanks for listening. I guess we should begin at the beginning. I was indeed (laughs) always bookish, although I want to say that I really didn't learn read until the middle of the first grade. But once I made that breakthrough, um, you know, all bets were off. Uh, but in my childhood, I, I grew up in a very small rural town. But I had the great fortune of my house being literally across the street from the public library. So I had access to many books uh, at a very young age, and uh, two days a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. So most writers are begin as readers. I don't think there's such a thing as a writer who doesn't begin as a reader. So I was lucky at a very young age to have reading be something that I had, I could emphasize in my life very readily. And I, I do think about what caused me to decide to go into journalism rather than to try to be more of a, just a writer on my own. Uh, but it was sort of, it, it's hard to think of journalism as a practical practical choice, maybe especially these days, but it seemed more practical. I could get a job at a newspaper, go through the apprenticeship of what it is to work for a paper, and supposedly be paid at least some kind of modest salary, and maybe even get insurance, health insurance, and ideally a week off every year. <laughs> so I went that route because it seemed like the more, I don't know, the, the less fanciful route. Uh, but I have always been drawn to true stories. Um, I think even a great novel is a kind of true story, and a great poem has true stories in it. So yeah. I don't see that as sort of genre-bound. But, um, but I do like, I uh, remember as a kid reading some biographies and uh, liking them. And I also recall that I was never really big on certain kinds of allegories, especially as they involve animals talking. Um, and growing up in a rural town, I had never heard an animal talk, and I guess I just wasn't whimsical enough to think that they could. Uh, so I was I was a much more um, fact-based kid in some ways. I felt that the world as it is, is so rich and so interesting to kind of read and think about that I didn't need to, to posit fantasy worlds to be compelled. Uh, reality was compelling enough. Um, as a little kid, I used to dream that Life magazine would come to my town and find something worth writing about, which is kind of an odd fantasy. <laughs> uh, but no, nothing ever happened that was worth writing about, so uh, that that didn't that didn't occur. Yeah, that's that kind of underscores a point that some of the the greatest. The greatest journalism that, that at least that that I read is about the the people who are who aren't making the the big headlines, so to speak. Like the the best stories come from the people whose 
what was it? I, when I was talking to, I was when I was talking to Patsy Sims, as she said, like basically the only time they're ever written about in a newspaper is their birth and death notices. Like those, those people are, tend to have the most interesting stories. So like having Life Magazine, this big magazine, sort of parachute into your little town and maybe write something about you guys, sort of underscores what's great about the best literary narrative journalism. I, I, I agree that the, to me the best stories are usually about people who are unsung or maybe they were at one point quite prominent and then they recede from the news and you go back to them. Yeah. They could be prominent because they accomplished something or because they were part of a news event. And uh, But time has passed and people aren't as um, maybe as, they're not thronging them the way they were. You, in, a, in, a, in Uphill Walkers, I, I think I emailed you about this point because uh, when I had my sort of ill-begotten trip through the hard news world that, that three-day trip i had at uh, the daily oh not daily hamp the oh the daily gazette in schenectady new york that my three uh-huh. day, three-day yeah. binge that went totally totally sour like i could never articulate why it just like turned my stomach and i couldn't do it and you had this great passage in uphill walkers that i'm just going to read real quick and it really echoed how i was feeling that time and it was where this uh these children's in your book, these children's these their father had had been shot or killed at this point, and you and you're like you return you're like I returned to the paper with an empty notebook and with the hard earned realization that although I probably didn't mind interviewing people after a tragedy, I did not want to talk to, talk to them as one unfolded a distinction that might seem trifling, but which led the way for me to combine my efforts to feature stories rather than breaking news, and that just I was just like that's it. That's it. Like you, you identified basically the kind of writer I am, but also the kind of writer you were. What at that point was that kind of a turn for you when you realized that, like, all right, this is the kind of writer I am, and I have to sort of pivot and go in that direction. It was a big pivot because up until that point, well, I was pretty young at that point. But the real, the um, it seemed like the the thrust of journalism and what was going to really help you make a name for yourself was covering hard news so and the bigger the event and the more public it was the more prominent you would be in some ways uh but just because you could borrow from that fame or whatever but uh i um coming to the realization that i wanted to cover smaller stories or stories that other people were ignoring because it fit much more into something about my personal style was, was in fact a huge breakthrough. I was going to say that um, the image I sometimes share with my students in, in the journalism classes I teach here at the University of Massachusetts is the one from the movie All the President's Men where there's an aerial shot of, I guess it's probably the beltway around Washington and some circling highway. And you see all this traffic moving in one direction and you see a car all alone, moving in the opposite direction. And then the camera zooms in and you find out that it's Woodward and Bernstein. So what I'm trying to say is that in general, I like the stories that make me feel like I'm going in the opposite direction of other people huh. or of the of the main uh, widely agreed upon narrative of what's important to write about. And I know for personally that when I, I, have, I had this like super – sort of hyper um, inadequacy when I when I realized I couldn't do the hard news that a lot of other people could do with ease. Like when they hear the police scanner, they want to get in their car and speed to the accident. When I was just like, I, I would rather let them, well, let the victims be able to sort of stew in that for a little bit and then come back to them a week later or months later or something. Uh, did did you, was it like a, a switch went off and you were just totally okay with that? Or did you have a sense of like, maybe you weren't as good a reporter as other people were? Mm. I, no, I think, I think I was okay with it, but not entirely. Cause a few years after the passage that you shared, um, uh, the events described in that passage, I remember I was at a newspaper in New Jersey and we were not far away, we were an hour or so away from where the Democratic Convention was going to be held at Madison, Madison Square Garden, which I could not wait to go to. And because we were so close to the action, a lot of the reporters in the paper were groomed to go. It was a cheap day for the paper. They didn't have to spend a fortune getting us in and out of town. But anyway, I got mm-hmm. to um, the convention, saw thousands of people, and 
recognized that I did not know how to tell a story about it. I did not know how to take something that big and find a story that I particularly had a, a gift for telling. And so I spun my uh, wheels for about three or four days. And finally, on the final day of the convention, I said to my editor, would it be all right if I went back and wrote a story after everyone leaves, just about what it's like during the cleanup? Uh, and he said, fine. I don't think he had much faith that I'd come up with anything good because I hadn't all week. <laughs> but when I finally got there at 10 at night and I saw the electricians taking away all the telephones and I saw the people picking up the debris and I saw the cops allowing the, um, the, the bums and the whores, as they said, to come back. They had been banished for that week. And I saw people taking up their spots, their normal spots outside the garden, people who were street people who had not, as I say, been allowed in view. Uh, I found I felt a great deal of passion for what I was writing about, and I wrote a piece that began to end with the ending. And I just described that sense of the place coming, coming apart, disappearing. And I realized that I had a story that I wanted to tell. I had a point of view, and I was able to run with it. And that actually helped me also get to my sense of what I wanted to tell in terms of stories, which that was a perfect example of covering the party after it was over. Seemed like a perfectly fine time to cover a party in yeah. the aftermath. Yeah, it's like what uh, you know, Gay Talese, you know, him saying, like, I want to write about the, the tuba player pulling up the rear of the parade. It's kind of that that instance where that's the kind of that's the most interesting part, even though it might it's not the band leader, but that's probably the, where the cool story is. Well, absolutely, and I'm sure that people have mentioned Sinatra has a cold, in which Tweez um, tried to interview Sinatra, who was really cranky because he had a cold. Which, of course, if you're a singer and a performer and you have a cold, it's probably ten times worse than for a normal person. So Tweez just talked to everyone around him and created all these scenes based on on his interactions with those people. And it's one of the classics of, um, of literary journalism that gets taught over and over. And he deserves a shout out for that, to say the least. Yeah. Another example also is Jimmy Breslin, uh, when he went down to uh, Dallas to cover the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. Oh, actually, he um, went to Washington. And so he uh, was... Instead of covering the funeral itself, he went to the graveyard and interviewed the person who was being paid the hourly wage to um, dig the grave for oh, the president. That's right. It's been and a while since I read that, but yeah, I remember that piece. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. And so that's another example of what we're talking about here. So how did how did you end up at the Miami Herald from, you know, you're at the paper in Jersey. Uh, where were the next dots that connected you to Miami? Well... When I was at the paper, I was at the paper in New Jersey, and um, I decided, which it was sort of crazy, to leave the paper without a job lined up. Mm -hmm. And it was, I had done, at that point, I was, you know, nearing my late 20s. I'd done a ton of features, and I just wasn't sure what, where I was headed in terms of my writing. And I decided I would try to freelance, which is pretty ludicrous, so I was able to <laughs> put together an income, which means I could pay my $90 a month for my car, an orange VW Dasher. <laughs> I was lucky enough to have a low rent in a house in Arlington, Virginia for a while that was owned by a friend, a friend, a friend who worked at the Washington Post owned it. And she rented out rooms to pay her mortgage. And um, oh, I had college loans, but I, I took care of them slowly but surely. And at any rate, I put myself through this fierce personal apprenticeship of reading a lot. And at the same time, uh, I ended up visiting a friend of mine who had moved to Miami to get a job at um, the Miami News, his friend who later became my husband. Mm -hmm. And believe but surely, I was kind of in Miami quite a bit and Washington, D.C. I remember thinking only a starving freelancer could pull this off because, <laughs> because I, was, I was willing to do things kind of on a, um, you know, on a thin thread. And uh, so I got to live in Miami before it became the world-class city it is today. It was sort of in a lot of turmoil. And eventually, I started doing a lot of work for the Miami Herald's Tropic Magazine and moved to Miami and was offered a job there. Mm. Uh, so I ended up in Miami that way. It was a kind of a, 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 a over the course of a couple of years of, of commuting back and forth and then moving there. 
what year was that when you took up, finally took up residence in Miami? Well, I'd say it was around late 70s. I know the, the Miami Herald offered me the full-time job in 79. And I remember the editor calling me, Larry Bloom, who's still around, and he wanted to offer me the job. He said, you have to understand that these jobs really come, come available every 10 years or so. So you might want to put that, you might want to consider that as part of your um, thought process here. Yeah. And he was right. It was a, you know, the job that didn't come, come available very often. And uh, so I, I, was a, I took it and then, of course, never looked back. It was a wonderful interlude. And you said that you were kind of giving yourself um, sort of a, a self-education by sort of expanding your reading probably into these other forms of longer feature writing and stuff that really helped your writing gain a, a, a next level of ele, ele, uh, elevation. So what were, uh, what were some of the people and pieces you were reading to help, you know, just further strengthen the type of feature writing you were doing? Okay, okay, I have a, an odd answer here. I think in my 20s, I was so consumed by journalism daily, uh, weekly, monthly, that I was reading a lot of magazines and newspapers and articles. And during that self-administered apprenticeship, I decided to reacquaint myself with reading and with literature. And I started reading or rereading, as the case may be, great novels. Uh, and looking at what the writers did in, in those books. And I started also trying to read more in uh, the field of literary journalism because that was when I went to I went to uh, college right after that. I went to Columbia School of Journalism. And I remember we didn't have a course in literary journalism at that time because it wasn't really codified into a genre. And the way I heard about books was through classmates who were better read than I and they would refer to like George Orwell, you know, down and out in uh, London and Paris or homage to Catalonia, or they would refer to James Agee, let us now praise famous men. And they would also, some of them for some reason knew some of his, his essays that had been in uh, fortune magazine, I believe it was. And uh, so I ended up with a, a kind of a, an ad hoc reading list that I created. I should say that though, when, in Cold Blood came out, which was in the late 60s. I read it pretty much hot off the presses. I didn't read it in serial form in The New Yorker. I read it as a book. And I remember thinking that it was a huge breakthrough for me because I could see that the kind of literature I wanted to write uh, could indeed be fact-based. Now, the sorry truth is that we have found out in the fullness of time that it's quite possible, or more than possible, it seems proven, that uh, Truman Capote piped some of the scenes in that book and 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 therefore its legacy has been undercut considerably but at the time i took it at face value and i felt that you could be a person covering the world and write that kind of book and um and that you could do so with you know complete integrity in the early 80s, I remember being quite taken with a series in The New Yorker that became a book by Susan Sheehan, Is There No Place on Earth for Somebody Like Me?, uh, which was a portrait of a woman who'd been kind of, oh God, gosh, revolving doored in and out of a place called Creed, Creedmoor, a mental institution, mental hospital in a psychiatric institution in New York. And she, the author... Um, just did a beautiful job of uh, that felt to me totally authentic and was mm. of capturing what this woman had to say. This woman who people dismissed as crazy, who in fact was heartbreaking, and and she made sense if you were enough of if you paid enough attention, she made total sense. And I remember taking that thought from reading that book into certain stories that I wrote where people said, well, this is a senseless event. And, I, and I, kept, I keep saying to myself, even to this day, if you pay enough attention, you may find this series of events make total sense. Makes total sense. Yeah, and to pay enough attention, you have to really cultivate a sense of patience, too, and be willing to hang out and put in, put in the time, not knowing if it's actually going to come together in the end. I, and I, I wonder, Holly, how long did it take you to realize that sometimes it – Things do take a long time, and then, yeah, sometimes they don't come together. 
Well, I try to tell myself that nothing is ever wasted. <laughs> so <laughs> if I start on something that really is flat or not going anywhere, I'm just not getting, doors are shutting in my face. I still try to say, well, at least something's going to come out of this eventually. And there'll be a little a sad story file on my computer that never gets opened because there's no reason to really open it. Uh, but I, I think you all, it's best to, um, as Emily Dickinson, Courses from Amherst, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. once wrote that about she wrote about dwelling in possibility. So I think as a journalist and as a writer, you're dwelling in possibility in terms of what you're doing at every moment. It's it's, it's fraught with hope, as we say. Uh, you have to you're looking at either a blank sheet of paper in the old days or a blank screen, and you're trying to make something out of nothing. And you just have to continually try to instill in yourself the faith that this will turn out to be something hmm. and with these with a lot of these great writers you're reading and contemporary and even even um you know some of the older older stuff and, and and for folks that are looking to break into some bigger bigger magazine writing bigger feature writing the type of stuff that you were that you were doing and really just you know just just purely masterful at like what what did that deconstruction or what does that look like to make it manageable that you can sort of do that type of work like uh, the work itself the final product sometimes can look so overwhelmingly beautiful that you forget that it is like a piece by piece kind of piece of work and craftsmanship you know where do you start when you look to deconstruct great work so that maybe you can do the same thing Funny, there's a great line from Yeats, something about uh, that. Something about you. You may have to. You may labor to be beautiful, but no one should notice it. <laughs> and if you people notice that all your stitching and unstitching has been for naught. <laughs> so if you read something that seems like it's beautifully done, at first you're right. You can't tell how the person did it. That you shouldn't be able to in a way. It's only after revisiting it and looking at various chess moves that they made that you begin to kind of analyze what what might have happened to help create this material or what might have led the writer to that scene. Um, I think of um, Catherine Boo and the Beautiful Forevers. Is that right? The name of it? Um, the yeah. book um, set in India and also her wonderful essay, The Marriage Cure. And in the case of someone like Catherine Boo, what you really get a sense of, if you want to know her trick, I think she's a world-class person. She's world-class at hanging out and uh, just get, being patient and get letting the moments kind of uh, unfold. So she's not lunging after a quick quote or anything like that. So with this kind of work, with literary journalism, there has to be some sense of being able, to, some sense of, that the process will unfold in its own time. And you have to be willing to hang out. Hmm. And so you you get to the the Herald in in uh you know nineteen seventy nine, and then how did you come to the story that would eventually become a Zepp's Last Stand? Oh, uh, the story of Zepp's Last Stand occurred partly because Zepp, who at that point was an old man living in Deerfield Beach, Florida. Uh, felt all his life he'd had a story to tell that he'd been wronged. And now that he was retired and with nothing else much to do, especially since his, I believe it was his third wife had died, maybe it was, I forget. He'd been married several times. His wife had died and he was he was actually feeling quite grief-stricken about that. And part of the way he just constructed meaning in his days is that he would show up at various newspapers throughout South Florida, and back in those days, there were lots of them. There was you know, not just the papers in Fort Lauderdale and Miami and Palm Beach, but also um, lots of smaller papers. And he would just waltz into the newsroom, an old man with a briefcase, and uh, say that he had a story to tell. And usually at these papers, people would be reasonably polite, especially if they weren't at that moment in a huge deadline crunch. And they would find somebody pretty young and green to be polite to him and listen to his story. And then he would go his merry way because people weren't picking up on it. Mm. But somehow my editor at uh, Copic Magazine at the Miami Herald, Larry Bloom, connected with Zepp in the story and suggested that I 
contact with Epps. So I was probably the first reporter that had actually called him. And I went and talked to him and got the details of of his uh, of the story that had been bothering him for all these years, which is he believed that he had been unfairly, dishonorably discharged during World War One. He'd been a soldier. He said he during the midst of the war he tried to become a CO. They wouldn't let him. They put him in Leavenworth, and he felt quite disgraced by that. He ended up having a uh, fairly more, I think, more than prosperous life in Cleveland, Ohio. He was the executive director, if I recall correctly, of the Community Chest, which is a little bit like the United Fund or maybe even a precursor to it. So he had a prominent job in town. He would basically was a fundraiser, and he knew how to convince people of um, how to give him money that them would go into the community chest and be given out to other people. He uh, said, I love one of his quotes. He said he was really good, particularly at flattering the ladies. And he said, I use the oil can profusely, (laughs) uh, which I never forgot. At any rate, he had one story to tell really, which was this, this, this terrible injustice. And that was what my, um, my article was about. It was about how he was able through a fluke to get a hearing at the Pentagon, get them to reopen his case. He'd already had a hearing in the early 50s, 1950s. We're now talking 1979. Uh, in the early 50s where he had been, uh, his dishonorable discharge had been upgraded to a general discharge, but he felt he should have an honorable discharge. So he wanted to take his case to Washington through a mistake he was given a, a hearing. The Pentagon went through with it. He took an overnight train, an Amtrak train to Washington, D.C., got off the train, met with an, uh, an Amnesty International attorney at 6 or 6.30 in the morning in an empty coffee shop, and then proceeded to the hearing, which was at 9 or 9.30 at the Pentagon, on the subway, and presented his case. He presented the same case I had heard him present many times because I'd interviewed him over several occasions and he had the same same information the same tearful pause the same hitch in his voice the exact same story he told over and over Hmm. and uh, the fellows at the Pentagon who included four WW2 veterans and one Korean War veteran listened listened politely and said they'd get back in touch with him and when they finally did uh, they told him that, uh, that he, was, he was very displeased. It was four, four out of the five had given him, had voted to give him the upgrade. He was really mad at the one person who hadn't and was all set to uh, go to Washington and kick him to the high heavens or something, which was a somewhat belligerent attitude for a CO. Yeah. But in other words, this was a very contradictory man. And, but he was a person, you just, you look at him, you see an older person, a much older person, um, you know, towards the end of his life, but there's a story he wants told. He's burning to tell it, and indeed, and indeed, that's what I covered. I was going to just say, say that recently at the university, I'm teaching a course in sports literature, and I asked the class to read "The Boys on the Boat," okay. uh, which is about Seattle, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you know, in the uh, the Olympics. And there, the class has learned that the author really would not have had this book if the main character, Joe, if his daughter hadn't said, you know, my father is quite old. He has a great story to tell. Will you talk to him? He's like, he likes another book that you wrote. And so the author spent a couple of months with this person at his, during his end days, really, with Joe. And then through that series of interviews, built on it and wrote this really incredible book. And so that's just another example of somebody that you would just see maybe walking down the street, a mild-mannered person, no reason to suspect that there's this depth there necessarily. However, if you're, if you're a writer, a feature writer, or a person who does long form, you start to suspect a lot of depth in a lot of people. It's just a matter of making yourself available to see if you can help them access the material. And and of course, Zepp's last stand won you the Pulitzer Prize. So what? Yeah, just kind of take me. I've never spoken to you about about that moment. Like, what was what was that like for you, and how did that change your life? Well, as I always say, it's a handy credential. <laughs> uh, so, so it looks good on a resume. Um, 
you know, you're, and I also say that you're only as good as your next story. So as great as it was to win a Pulitzer, uh, you still have to pull your weight. It does something you can really rest on mm-hmm. in this world. Uh, but it was a great honor, and I it was a surprise. Uh, I found out that day, and the reason I found out was in, in these days. You know, I judged the Pulitzers the past couple of years, and I judged in. Uh, criticism and in feature writing, which was a great honor and fun to do. Mm. And they really, people don't leak the, 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 um, there are usually in any, any category, three, uh, top choices. They actually seem like they don't get leaked at all. But back then there was just leak central. <laughs> no one was keeping their mouth shut, but somehow <laughs> I did not know. And I was, um, I got a phone call from a friend at another paper saying, congratulations. And I thought it was a joke. But she worked at uh, a paper where that that year was winning several Pulitzers, and so she kind of knew what was on the list. And that so that's how I first learned, maybe an hour or two before the actual um, announcement. Huh. Wow, that's uh, that's incredible. And uh, in your recent judging of the of the of the award, uh, what what are you noticing these days uh, coming out of you know today's reporting versus you know the reporting you were doing? You know, back then. Uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, um, feature writing remains, of course, so dear to my heart. <laughs> so I'll talk about that category first, I sure. guess. Um, but what you find these days is that there are, you know, amazing AV components to stories. And, you know, almost mini films are made. These, these AV things are practically mini movies. Well, like Gene Weingarten's so you, piece. That's with yeah, the. So yeah. yeah. And Gene Weingarten, I should say, he, he did, used it for uh, Pearls Before Breakfast. I think that was the name of the yeah. piece, right? Yeah, I think. He, Gene, Gene was one of my editors at Tropic Magazine, too. Huh. I maybe should make it clear that at a certain point, Tropic Magazine just seemed to be um, a publication that was, even though it was part of a newspaper, it had uh, enormous energy. People like the novelist Carl Hyacin worked there, uh, Dave Barry was pretty much discovered by Tropic Magazine uh, and other writers, Joel Achenbach, uh, Tom Schroeder. Was Capuzzo uh, there too? Mike Capuzzo? Mike Capuzzo, I don't know if he, he was at the Miami Herald. Okay. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if he was at Tropic. He probably did stories for Tropic. Uh, yeah, the, anyway, uh, the Herald, uh, it's, it's easy to you know, think that the past is always better than the present and that's not a, a healthy uh, attitude to take, but the Herald in those days does deserve uh, credit for having somehow, uh, just just in general, uh, having been just a great paper. Yeah, so you're saying the, there were a lot of these uh, now like AV components to the, oh, yeah, these, the these features. Writing. Yeah. Um, when I judged it two years ago, I, I was amazed by the number of entries, and a lot of them were really good. Um, a lot were solid, but they weren't going to necessarily be amongst the finalists. But you know how, I mean, I, they, they say that the classes at Harvard, um, you could get rid of the entire, you know, new freshman class, first year class, and substitute yet another one or another one or another one. There are that many good people out there. Yeah. And at the top of the feature writing uh, cat- category, uh, I, I can't remember how many entries there were, but it was quite a few. I mean, it was hundreds. Um, but at the top, I would say the top 10 to 20% are really, maybe at least 10% are, are excellent. And how you then narrow it down is pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it could go to, it could, it just becomes a matter of taste and really could go to anybody. At that level, at the highest level, it's, it is, you know, the, the, uh, you'll find that there are many um, pieces that don't make the top three that are deserving. But what's kind of fun is that you keep those pieces in mind and you find out that they've won other awards. Mm. So you know that they're out there, they're being honored, and that's good. Yeah, so they're getting theirs. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so at, at what point did you feel confident in writing, you know, having been a a consumer of memoir for a while, at what point did you feel confident that you could, that you wanted to write your own? Okay, that's another good question. Um, let me begin by saying that the first memoir I remember reading is The Diary of Anne Frank mm-hmm. when I was in eighth grade, and I loved it. Uh, 
a teacher at my public school gave us an exercise where we were supposed to write an essay about the Nuremberg trials. And, um, and each is an eight sentence essay and each sentence was supposed to embody a rhetorical concept. It's supposed to be a complex sentence, a complex compound sentence. And, um, one sentence was supposed to be, I got to say this right, an exhortation. Hmm. And so the final sentence of my eight sentence composition was, but it built the argument built up. Let's bring these people to justice. You know, they were terrible. The final sentence was a pure eighth grade girl sentence. Let not Anne Frank's diary be in vain. <laughs> so there I was in love with that book, in love with yeah. her voice. I could not believe I was reading it, not because of the sense of history that was breathing down that, that story so much as reading it for the portrait of a young adolescent girl how her family makes her cranky, hmm. uh, how she wants to write in her diary, how she wants to be with this boy, this and that. Um, and the next book I remember reading was shortly after that at my public library. A book, I got a hold of a book called Man Child in the Promised Land, which was a book by a man who had grown up in Harlem and he was talking about uh, the hardship of that and, and some of the good points too. But a lot about drugs and violence and stuff of that material of that nature, and I remember reading that. Now that was totally different than my rural white town, but uh, also I, I just remember thinking this is just amazing to have somebody share their life to this degree. And so I was hooked. I'd say eighth or ninth grade on memoir. Mm. And then as time went on, when I was doing my fierce reading apprenticeship, some books came out and that I was. It came out kind of during that time, perhaps right before it, but I read Frank Conroy's Stop Time. I read uh, um, Jeffrey Wolf's Duke of Deception and Frederick Exley's Fans Notes, as well as Memoirs or memory, Memoirs of a Catholic Girlhood by Mary McCarthy. So I started reading these books that were memoirs, not just novels and not just nonfiction, but that particular form. And uh, I realized I just had an infinity for reading it, if nothing else. So mm -hmm. I remember I was given a book to review at one point by the Herald called Home Before Dark by Susan Cheever, which was a book about her father, John Cheever. And it was almost like she took a preemptive, she made a preemptive strike against future biographers, which was great, and wrote about her father, who was a complicated person, which is usually sometimes a euphemism for someone who's unappealing. He was very appealing, <laughs> but he was also had a lot of struggles. And she was able to give a kind of a loving, full, and I'd say forthright portrait of him. And I remember being quite taken with that. Mm. At what point did you come across A Movable Feast and This Boy's Life? Um, this Boy's Life, I think, when did that come out? I have it right in front. I can. I think that came out in like the late seventies. It came out after. I believe it came out after the Duke of Deception. I know, and, and a movable feast and um, uh, and this place life are two books that I teach a great deal in my memoir class here at UMass. Um, a movable feast. I may have. I think that came out in the late sixties. I got it. I, I could if I. I'd have to leave the phone to jump up to look at my bookshelf because uh, this is old-fashioned. I'm on a landline right now. But uh, uh, I, I read that pretty much when it came out. Okay. And what I loved about uh, A Movable Feast, and I don't love everything Hemingway ever wrote, um, and I know he is somewhat defrocked because he was, you know, a racist. He was a... Uh, um, a misogynist, and I think he was, um, you know, adverse to, uh, uh, well, obviously to, to to any kind of sexuality that wasn't his, which was a kind of over overblown male sexuality. At mm -hmm. any rate, so he's easy to maybe discount because we live in a much more polyglot world. Uh, but if you read a movable feast, you you re you can read it for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is a lot of his advice about writing is spot on. And so if you take 
that advice to heart, you're going to, I think, make your own work better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've come across, the, there's, I think in the opening chapter there, like he's saying something that was kind of, uh, he's basically taking a sketch of this woman. He's like internalizing her and it's just like, well, now, I mean, you could you read this two ways. He was kind of saying like, no, well, now you're mine essentially. But really what he's doing is just, he's taking in everything so he, that he can just distill it into the best way on, on the page. And that, that hunger is good discipline too. I've taken new meaning out of that one. Uh, before, when I first read that scene, I was just like, Oh yeah, you know, he some, seems to think that having an empty stomach really sharpens his vision and which I just called BS on because when I'm hungry, I can't focus on anything else. <laughs> yeah, but then it realized it was like that hunger. That was his drive. That was his ambition. And the, right. that that's kind of what it came to after I read it a few times. You're like, nah, it's not not about food. It's about that singular vision to be the greatest or to be the best he can be. And um, I agree with what you're saying completely. Another thought he shares is something about, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but that um, at, at the end of a given day, you should stop writing when you know what the next sentence will be. So when you come back the next morning, you can just hit the ground running, yeah. which is a really... And also the uh, when he talks about writing one true sentence, mm-hmm. uh, and how as a writer sometimes you'll realize that something you wrote does seem to be to use your expression BS free. <laughs> you know, it seems like you really wrote something you try, and you certainly can see that in great writers that you read when you see a sentence that just uh, that does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, and you you cite like this boy's life in a movable feast is like real formative books that um, uh, that really translated into your your memoir of place to the new owners and um, and I just having taken your your class uh, you know fourteen years ago and then you know reading this I can I I got the sense of how important those books were to you then and then as you wrote this book here um, that importance of uh, of place, no matter where that place is, and yeah, so as well, like, how did you come to the story, and how important was place as you were looking to craft this your latest book, which is beautiful. Uh, um, uh, to the new owners is a really it's a it's a memoir of a place on one level, and the place is Martha's Vineyard and a a, a modest house that existed on a I would say an immodest piece of land in the sense that the land was beautiful on a pond that led to the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and the and I wanted to write about that house because it was a, and land were about to be sold. And I wanted to capture the years of life that had been lived on that little piece of property. But at the same time, the book is really a memoir about the family I married into uh, as much as about the house. So yeah. it's kind of a tribute to them as well as to this, to the island of Martha's Vineyard, which is a very lovely island. It is, um, it's, it, it also is uh, complicated. <laughs> and, uh, and I tried to capture some of, some of that in what I wrote. But the, the two memoirs, the Hemingway memoir and the Tobias Wolf memoir come up because at one point during the many summers we spent there, for various reasons, that Catherine Graham, uh, the the, at that point, retired publisher, or maybe about to be retired publisher for the Washington Post, whom I ran into at a memorial service for a mentor of mine, knew that I was going to be on the island with my husband and family for a couple of weeks in the summer, and she said, please give me a call. And I was kind of taken aback, thinking, did she really mean it? And I guess if, she, you know, if Catherine Graham says you should call her, at least you should call her, whether she meant it or not, <laughs> uh, it'd be, you know, kind of discourteous not to call. So we, I did call, and it turned out that we ended up having a once-a-year meal uh, over the course of the summer of eight, 89 until her death, um, right before uh, the summer of 2001. And earlier that summer, we had spoken, and we had made plans to get together. Uh, so, uh, But it, during the beginning of those years, she was working on her, her own memoir, she worked on it for a long time, I think six, seven, or eight years. And finally it got to the point where I didn't know if it was ever going to come out. And you don't want to you know, push somebody, especially someone of her prominence, just to ask how things are going. Writers really can get very touchy about that. 
because when you're working, so you're so away from the world, you know, having that be a casual social question, like, how is your writing going? It's just hard to answer that in a jovial manner. Um, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know okay. um, but at any rate, at one point when we were invited to her house for lunch or dinner, I wanted to bring a hostess gift, which... Truthfully, it was very hard to think of what you could bring to Mrs. Graham because she had her menu all planned. You weren't going to contribute to the meal. Uh, she had a, a French chef, um, which, of course, made the food beautiful. Uh, she also she had world-class visitors, international people, that, like the King of Jordan, I guess, once gave, visited and gave her beautiful pottery, which I complimented. And she said, ah, oh, that was from the King of Jordan. And once I saw something else, it was from Princess Diana. And once I was there, and her cousin came, who was then the uh, senator uh, from Florida, and there was some talk he might be president, so I remembered, note to self, if you can go to Mrs. Graham's with presidential buzz, that's the best hostess gift. Well, I couldn't do supply any of those, so what I did was I picked um, about four or five memoirs, but the two that stand out in my memory were the Hemingway and the Tobias Wolf to give her, saying, my, and I, I gave her a note saying that in my opinion, that one of the really wonderful things about writing memoir is, is that it's a genre that you can read in as you are working on your own memoir pieces. Mm. I know a lot of writers uh, who work in a genre like, for instance, thriller writing, who won't read other people's thrillers because they're so afraid that they might pick up on something and use it unconsciously that they shouldn't be using because it's not really theirs. Whereas a memoir, it would take a kind of a very weird person to plagiarize someone else's life story. So it's not as likely to happen. Yeah. Um, so, but, but at any rate, um, the, the book uh, To the New Owners was uh, partly a book of memory. And as uh, Tobias Wolf says, you tell the best story memory can tell. So I was trying to write about what a place meant that would no longer be in my life. And I tried also, of course, to bring perspective to it. It had been an enormous privilege to be able to go to that island for two weeks every summer. And I wanted to write what I wrote as a way of expressing gratitude, uh, not anything else. Yeah, and you, and you say, like, you know, you know, mining those deep wells of memory, but you also had these great logbooks over over the years. And, and as you were going through the research of this uh, of this book, like, what was it like for you to really dig deep into those log books and uh, relive a lot of that stuff? Well, what, what I should say is that, and a lot of people, a lot of people who read the book have taken that away as their one of their one of their big takeaways has been: our family should start keeping a log. Um, <laughs> we had purchased from a place called AGA Correas and Sons in Maine ship's logs, so they were. Um, Oh, gosh, the exact dimensions are in the book, but let's say 11 inches by 12 inches or something. They're bigger than a regular little notebook. And they had uh, extremely, extremely good paper in them. They still do. They're still available to be purchased. And you could personalize the title on each of these logs, which was kind of fun. We ended up with eight of them over the years. And what happened was that at first people were a little reluctant to write in them. But we made it clear that you could put drivel, you could put a recipe, you could put instructions about how to keep um, fresh flowers alive in a uh, in a vase, which is to say, you put an aspirin in the water. Uh, mm -hmm. You could complain about um, a snake that you saw on the property, or uh, the ticks, or the poison ivy, or how hard it was to get to the island, and any. Uh, delays at the Steamship Authority, or you could write something more meaningful and deep, and or you could draw. <laughs> and so what, as the years went by, these logs became so important to ourselves and our company that people would come to the house, and before they'd even unpack their suitcases or put the groceries in the, in the icebox, they'd be lunging at these logs and just going through them over and over to remember what what they had written before or what someone else had written or, or drawn or whatever. <laughs> and I had those eight logs as part of my uh, research, research that I could rely on uh, to help give a sense of that place over the years and of time passing. Yeah. And, and was this a hard book for you to write? Well, and it was hard because all books are kind of hard to write, but it was also, I was really happy to be writing it mm. because I felt if I couldn't 
I felt that when the new owners bought the property that, of course, they knew they were getting a beautiful spot, but they couldn't, how could they, you can't hold them responsible for this, how could they understand what they, what I felt they were buying, which is the entire emotional weight of the time that I'd spent there <laughs> and that my family had and that my extended family had and our guests had. And I didn't want that to be lost, to just simply be something that gets signed away, you know, by um, a deed that's, you know, registered with the property office in town. I wanted that meaning to be to stay alive. So it was, uh, uh, and uh, I think that the, the opportunity to keep something that important to me alive made the book in many ways fun to write. And was it, had you always intended to write about this or was it the selling of the property that really catapulted you to want to, to seize the memories that they, that, you know, you were thinking that they were buying by taking the property, you know, if that makes any sense. Um, Brendan, I think it was both. I think I'd always, I had written a little bit about the property and the people in years past. Uh, but what, but really the impulse to, to finally, um, to finally write what I wrote came about when it was in, when the sale of the house was quite clearly inevitable. And I had such mixed feelings about it. I always say mixed feelings equal material. <laughs> uh, so anybody out there who's listening, if you have mixed feelings about something, that's when you should, that's what you should be looking at as your subject matter. That's great. Quite frequently. <laughs> well, I, I know you got to get going, uh, so I should yeah. probably, uh, I'll be respectful of your time here. I wish we could uh, talk for another two hours, but maybe another time. Brendan, you are great. I'm really glad that we have worked together in the past. I met you first in 2003 in a memoir class at UMass, and later I know you went on to Goucher College, and you um, got your MFA there when it was um, under the director directorship of the truly amazing Patsy Sims, and also that you have yourself written a beautiful book, Six Weeks in Saratoga, which is a work of literary nonfiction. So I'm expecting your baseball memoir sometime pretty soon. I, I hope so. I've uh, It's been, I've been letting it gestate for a, a while. Uh, Walter read it last summer to some chagrin, um, but yeah, that, that can be a conversation for another time, but it was, uh, but it, we'll see. I think it'll see the light of day soon, I hope. I hope so too. Awesome. I really do. Well, fantastic. Well, well, thank you. And, and thanks so much for the time, Maddie, and we'll certainly be in touch. Okay, thank you so much, Brendan. Great, and, and thank you. Bye. That is a wrap. Thank you to Maddie for the time and the beautiful insights into the craft of literary journalism and memoir. If you've made it this far, you probably dig the show. And if you dig the show... I ask that you leave a nice review on iTunes. Also, you can find show notes to this episode and all the others at brendanomera.com, where you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter that gives you my book picks for the month and what you may have missed from the world of the podcast. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. You know, say hi on Twitter, Matt Brendan O'Mara. That's going to do it. Have a CNF and good week, friends.